0: Scripture reading this morning will be from first Timothy chapter five. If you have that, you can stand. First Timothy five, beginning in verse seventeen. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels, to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the instruction that you've given us. We know it is for our good. And Lord, again, we want to yield to you in humility and obedience and faith to all that you have said. Teach us and speak to us, and we pray that Christ would be exalted. As we look at your word together, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul has been um, beginning in chapter 5 telling Timothy to treat all people with respect and honor. Older men, younger men, older women, younger women. And then a lengthy section on the particulars of caring for widows who are widows indeed. The common theme is respect and honor. And now he moves to talking about elders. And then in the first part of chapter 6, he'll talk about masters toward their slaves. And again, in respect to elders and in respect to slaves toward their masters, honor is the key word. So he starts this section with the elders being compensated. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. I think in in this paragraph, he's speaking of both honoring the man and at the end of the paragraph, honoring the office when the man himself is not acting honorably. One of the ways that elders are to be honored is those especially that are working hard at preaching and teaching should be remunerated. The scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the labor is worthy of his wages. We have one or two barbecues every year at his hill. Brian and I, Brian Stamnis and I do the barbecuing typically, and this is Brian's favorite verse in all the scripture you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, which means we get to sample of the barbecue while we're cooking. And usually I'm not hungry by the time it's time to eat. We've been sampling so much. This is really a passage that is especially difficult to preach on um, because I am one who is remunerated by the church. And I am thankful that... um, that the church has been very generous to me and Patsy, and so there's no comment that I could make that would be reflective negatively on our own experience because our experience has only been positive. I pulled out four different commentaries on 1 Timothy to see how they treat this passage because it has created some controversy. Um, And so just to read brief comments from each of these four. One writer says the oversight um, for the oversight, all elders received a stipend. I never heard anybody else say that, but in this man's view, every elder was paid. But those who excelled in this ministry of leadership were to be considered worthy of double honor or twice the remuneration of the rest. Again, I've found that to be a unique view. Another writes, if pastors are faithful in feeding and leading the people, then the church ought to be faithful and pay them adequately. Double honor can be translated generous pay. A third wrote, an elder deserves to be honored, particularly if his labor excels in quality. This honor is due especially to those who labor in preaching and teaching. And this implies, of course, that wherever it is necessary, it would be, and it would be necessary, especially in the case of the minister, the work should also be rewarded in a material way. A man who spends all his time and effort in kingdom work, a minister, certainly deserves a good salary. It would be evidence of lack of honor if the church should demand of a man who devotes himself entirely to spiritual work that he do this gratis. And then a fourth writer, no matter how poor a local congregation is, it must exercise faith and liberality before the Lord in giving to those who labor in the word. In short, God's people must honor their elders. For what could be more unkind, writes Calvin, than to have no care for those who have the care of the whole church? Today, we desperately need to capture Paul's passion and vision for the centrality of preaching and teaching the Word in the power of the Holy Spirit. If we do, we will gladly render double honor to elders who labor in the Word. If we don't, we are doomed to wander far off course into forbidden waters, just as the church at Ephesus did. And I think that last comment is probably most in spirit with what the Lord is saying here. That it's not so much about paying a man well as it is about expressing the value that we place upon the preaching and teaching of God's word. The payment is, is, is for that, really. It's our way of saying this is valuable to us. It's why we, we pay people a lot of money to get our cars worked on, or doctors to look at our bodies. And we do so because we consider it valuable. How much more so, Paul seems to be saying, when it comes to the handling, teaching, preaching of God's word. If we value that, then we will show it in how we give. I think it it, it speaks to our under-appreciation for God's Word that historically, at least in the southern part of the United States, ministers have been grossly underpaid. And again, I am not speaking from personal experience. Good men, I know for prior to my generation in seminary, when a man was, was training for the ministry and about to graduate and was looking at prospective churches, he would never ask the question what am I going to be paid? It was not ever asked because he went by the calling of God. And if he believed that God was calling him to a church, he believed that God would also supply for him. With my generation, that began to change. And I remember having that pointed out to us when I was in seminary. Something's wrong with you guys. One of the first questions you ask is how much am I going to be paid? We used to never ask that question. To put some of the blame at the foot of the church and I don't put much there because I believe that that is inappropriate for a man going to a church to have as his primary consideration, even his first consideration, what the church would pay him. I would be more of the mind that it shouldn't be asked. I came to his hill without asking how much money we were going to be paid And, and preaching here has been the same thing or anywhere else. But there have been many churches across, particularly the southern part of the United States, that have had the mentality: we need to keep our pastor in a dependent state, so that he will be dependent upon the Lord and see God's faithfulness worked out in his life, and that he will his preaching will be fresh and vital because he is always so dependent financially. I find that unfair. And to be a double standard. When we wouldn't demand the same thing of a doctor or the guy who works on our car. But the preacher who's handling God's word. We're saying we're going to keep you poor. So that we keep you dependent and fresh in the Lord. That is literally how many people think. I don't see that being expressed by Paul here. Yet I also see a man who never required payment. Never asked for it and on occasion even refused to take it. It is about truly honoring the value of the word as well as honoring the man. Moving from that, supporting the elder, he now speaks about protecting the elder. In verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, on the face of it, it seems like this is a a, a barrier to even talking to an elder and confronting an elder over his sin. I don't believe that's what Paul has in mind. I believe that there is always freedom for any brother or sister in Christ to speak to an elder as a brother or sister in Christ. One-on-one, this is something I see in your life, we need to talk about it. And it should be encouraged. I don't think that this is anything different than what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Where you don't take it to the church until first the individual has gone to the person. And if that isn't met with repentance, then that individual takes two or three more with him to that person. And then only after that is unsuccessful does it go to the church. So if anything, this passage in my mind is just supporting what Jesus has already said. The church should not hear accusation against anyone until first there are two or three witnesses and we know that those individuals have first gone to the individual that's in question and spoken to them. This is a hard thing to do because when people have been hurt, And many times as elders, you understand there has been hurt. Whether it's legitimate or not, it's there. And we all have the same propensity. It doesn't change when you become an elder that you want to help the hurting. In fact, that's one of the reasons you're an elder. You care for the hurting. But there has to be the discipline of saying, Have you gone to this person who has hurt you? And you can't assume that we are going to just automatically accept everything that you're saying without having other testimony on this. It is difficult being in leadership, whether it's in the church or in any other venue. We would hope that we would not be people who would readily accept slander and gossip toward other people, outside the church or in the church. Even with our politicians, there are so many things we know in any election cycle where one salacious bit of gossip is enough sometimes to ruin an entire candidacy, only later to find out it had nothing to do with the truth. That kind of thing should never take place in the church, Paul was saying. This ought to be the place where we are slow to judge. We're going to get the information. Before we start accepting accusations, it mean, does not mean that the elder is, is immune from confrontation or from accusation being leveled at him. But it means the church should be very slow, careful, and deliberate, and not just believe every negative report quickly. The demand for two or three witnesses, if, if nothing else, serves as a pushback on the person who would too quickly accuse an elder. And sometimes that in itself is enough to end the matter. It means it is a demand to stick to the facts and to resist emotion and feelings and suspicions and intuition and impressions and innuendo and all the rest of it. And there needs to be that discipline that says facts only. What actually happen. Don't tell me what you think the person might do. Don't tell me what you think the person might have done the facts. It's hard to do that, especially when people are very, very concerned or have been hurt. It must happen. So to honor the elders means to support them financially and it also means to protect them from gossip and slander and false accusation. Now, it's not necessarily a, a strong break here, but it seems that Paul wants to talk about the office itself. Because there will be elders who need to be rebuked for their sin. So, verse 20, those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. This is unlike anything else when it comes to confrontation and, and holding people accountable. The inference seems to be here that when it comes to an elder, because of the public role that he holds, his sin is public because his office is public. And so if there is sin worthy of him being personally rebuked, then that rebuke needs to be public. That is not true for non-elders. If a person is not in this position and he has been confronted privately by the elders and he has responded to that private confrontation and it doesn't concern other people in the church, then there is nothing that would indicate that what happened privately on a private matter needs to be made public. But it's different with an elder. Most of us at some point in our life have probably seen some form of church discipline exercised. I can't ever remember seeing this done. And in our church, I don't ever remember needing it to happen, thankfully. God's grace. But should it take place, again, the tendency in the world is to sweep things under the rug is to do things in, in the dark, in back rooms, and in that it gives the idea of, of, of things have not been done well, they have, haven't been done with integrity, that there's been deal-making and handshaking, and basically we're all protecting our own hides. None of that should be true in the church. Everything should be open, on the table, and above board when it comes to church leadership. And the church has the right to expect it. That when an elder has sinned, and the implication would be serious sin, whether he has repented or not, assuming that he has repented, but it is something that has happened that is serious, it needs to be made known publicly. And if that doesn't cause the rest to fear God, I don't know what will. (laughs) And that seems to be the point here is that we are not playing games when it comes to church. It is serious business. This is the body of Christ, and the head is to be honored, and he hates sin, and so should the body. And when there is a wayward elder, it is not enough for it to be dealt privately by the rest of the elders. It becomes a church matter and needs to be addressed publicly. The hope being that the rest of the elders in particular will be fearful and not themselves sin. In verse 21, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. This is not the first time that Paul appeals to the angels when saying something to the churches. Over in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks about um, headship, um, women covering their heads, and, and in that whole context, it seems to be that the main thing he is after is that when we become Christians, that does not annul the headship of a husband over his wife any more than Christ is not under the headship of the Father. Christ is under the headship of the Father, every man is under the headship of Christ and the wife is under the headship of her husband. It's very clear in 1 Corinthians 11. And then Paul, to substantiate his argument, he appeals to five different things that have nothing to do with culture in that passage. He talks about the Trinity, he talks about creation, and then third thing he talks about is the angels. And he says, for the sake of the angels, you need to maintain this order. And so you go, what's that about? Well, it seems to be the same thing here. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the chosen angels, which would mean the angels that have not fallen away and become demons. Angels understand authority. And it is so to them, just just contradictory, way beyond ironic, that those who are in Christ do not honor and respect authority and submit to it. And those who have violated the authority of their and the integrity of their office are not held accountable for it. Because in the angelic realm, these things would never happen. And so it's like the angels are going, what planet are we from? Not that they're from a planet, but I feel like that sometimes. Well, we all do just go, what are we dealing with here? To them, it is just inconceivable that God, who is orderly and where there is submission and where there is respect and honor, would have a group of people who are not functioning the way the entire universe functions. And so Paul says, on the basis of God, on the basis of Christ Jesus, on the basis of the angels, I'm telling you, no partiality, no bias when it comes to the implementation of these principles. No favoritism. And this is, again, we know our humanity. And this is another reason why there ought to be, I believe, always a plurality of elders. So we can check each other, help each other to do the right thing. And just because this guy maybe has been a Christian for a long time and been faithful and everything, anybody is capable of anything. And when a an elder sins, it needs to be dealt with, as Paul is saying, two or three witnesses, and then deal with it publicly, as God has said. No partiality, no favoritism. This is the way of God. And that brings him to, don't then, because this is such serious business, and nobody wants to go down this road of having to publicly rebuke an elder. Then don't be too quick to appoint elders. And that's the next part here. You can be too quick. It's hard to be guilty of being too slow. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. So in other words, this, is, this was part of the procedure. It's metaphorical, laying hands on somebody, of, of giving authorization to them, of identifying with them. And so, Paul's just speaking metaphorically of don't be too quick to make a person an elder. Because you don't want to have to, later on, have to deal with sin that we, the church shouldn't have had to deal with if you had just taken your time on this matter. Don't be too quick. A person comes into the church, he's maybe been an elder in another church. We understand those things, maybe been a Christian a long time, but we don't know him. Take care. Your time is what Paul is saying, because should he sin, and you've appointed him to that position, and you did it too quickly without doing your homework, then you share responsibility for his sin. It only brings reproach to the church. And so Paul says to Timothy, keep yourself free from sin. Little parenthesis then, because it's almost like Paul says, keep yourself free from sin. Oh yeah, that reminds me, Timothy. You're not drinking any wine because you're under the conviction that you shouldn't because it would be sinful. Well, here's the deal. You've got stomach problems. And you're sick all the time. And you can't carry out the ministry that God's given you because of the conviction that you have not to drink wine. They didn't have antibiotics back then. They didn't have, you know, all the different drugs we take when we're not feeling well. We've got stomach issues. I remember when I went to Egypt and, and I ate some cucumbers and tomatoes. And I thought, oh my, Pharaoh's revenge. And I had never been so sick in my life. And I'm thinking, where are the drugs? And, and, and it was awful. Well, that's the way it is. When you, you know, in, in other countries and when you're traveling and stuff and you're drinking bad water, people get sick. I had my grandmother, two of the 12 children that she lost, three of the 12 children she lost was because of dysentery and his stomach issues, no antibiotics to deal with those things. And so Timothy is having stomach problems. And he has apparently a personal conviction that he shouldn't drink. And so Paul is saying, this is the time when you need to set aside that conviction and drink a little wine to settle your stomach. Say say, adios to the amoebas. Now, that's just a parenthesis. He comes in verse 24 back to the issue of elders and selecting them for their role. Verse 24. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. So you're not going to consider them to be an elder, in other words, right? Because they just go, You don't need to. It is clear this man is disqualified from being an elder. We understand that. But that's not true for everybody. And some people, their sin isn't evident. So take your time, ask questions. So he says, going before them to judgment. Now, for others, their sins follow after. As one writer said, this is not about um, God judging them, but about the church judging them to see if they are qualified for this role. Some men's sins are so obvious that no one would think of appointing them to office. Thus, no evaluation for appointment to leadership is necessary. The judgment Paul refers to is human assessment, not God's judgment. God is not the subject here because all sins are evident to him. The sins of some men are not easily seen, so action must be suspended until the man's character and conduct are examined. For others, their sins follow after. Paul assures Timothy that the sins of these men will be exposed at the time of their examination. When our son Ryan was applying to be a part-time youth pastor of a church where he's serving in Louisiana, the entire church convened twice with him for two hours each time to quiz him. And they quizzed him down to, what movies have you seen recently? What are your favorite books? You know, I mean, they asked him, it was free to ask him anything and everything they wanted for four hours nonstop. Some people called it an inquisition. But they were saying, this young man who is not married that we do not know, we're going to be putting in charge of our teenage girls. There are no questions that are not off limits here. And if it takes till now, till the cows come home, we're going to take as much time as it takes to ask him every question we can think of because we need to know what we're getting. That's just wise. That's prudent. And, you know, I know in in our context of, of torchbearers, the Bible schools, there are guest speakers that we have come in every year for a week or two at a time for decades. But that doesn't mean we really know those men. I like them. I'm taking them out to lunch. I'm doing student evaluations on them pretty much every week, and but I'm not sitting in on all their classes. And to be honest, I'm probably I feel like I probably ask more questions than most people ask because I'm a question-asking kind of guy. And but but I still can't say that I've maybe ever questioned them about this or questioned them about that. Maybe I've never met their wife. I don't know their children. You know, I don't. I don't know what kind of debt they might be carrying. There's so many things I don't know about them because it's never come up, even after 30 years of having lunch with them, once or twice a year at his hill. And I think, well, I know them well, but do I? Paul, it seems to be saying here, don't assume too much. Ask questions. And when you're trying to determine a person's values, a person's character, and a person's beliefs, there is no question that is off limits. And if a person can't give you a direct answer to their questions, what does that make you feel like? They have something to hide. There's something that they're avoiding here. People ought to be able to give you straight, clear answers to straight, clear questions. That's just the way the body of Christ should work. We walk in the light. We we seek truth. I like to ask questions. Nobody, including myself, always likes to have questions asked of them. But I so appreciate it. may not have liked it at the time, but I appreciate it. We had a staff meeting on Friday, a special staff meeting, and, and I was presented an issue before the staff because I wanted their input and there were a few that asked questions, good questions, questions that needed to be asked, questions that I hadn't necessarily thought of questions that might have put me on the spot a little bit, but it needed to happen. I remember we had years ago a staff person that um, messed up morally and, and some others that were very close to him from another church sat down with me over lunch and they were just questions, questions, questions. And they were apologetic because they were asking so many questions about this situation and what had happened and, and how I'd responded to it. And they were afraid that I, you know, would take offense. And I told them, I am not going to take offense. These are questions that need to be asked. And I'm glad you're asking them. That is the part of Leadership. And many times we don't know something because we never asked the right question. And this is why it needs to be many times eyeball to eyeball because a question will generate an answer and that answer will generate another question that wasn't anticipated before. And it needs to be asked on the spot. So Paul is just being wise and demonstrating prudence here. And every church should because the matter is very serious. We're talking about the leadership of the church of Jesus Christ. And it's to be taken seriously. People are not to be appointed because of their personalities. Or even because they've been a Christian for a long time. But there's to be careful scrutiny of individuals. And then verse 25. Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident. And those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. In all, really, it's a very straightforward passage. I like these kinds of passages. I don't have to go to the Greek, you know, and wrestle with sentence structure and vocabulary. It couldn't be more plain. But often it's the plain passages that cause us the most discomfort as well. You can't, there's no wiggle room here. God loves his church more than we do, and he takes it very seriously. The elder is to be honored and that honor means compensated and protected. But the office is to be honored as well. And that means when he is, has sinned, it needs to be dealt with publicly. And that when we're looking to appoint elders or deal with an elder who has sinned, no bias, no partiality, no favoritism, no matter who the individual is. And take our time. I hope that these things will always be true here at Bernie Bible. I feel like they are and have been, but we can all go astray. And that's why, again, we are a priesthood of believers. And the body always has the freedom and liberty to speak to the leadership. It's not a dictatorship. We are a body. And we need openness. And it should always be encouraged and challenged if necessary. We may not always, the Lord have us in this church. He moves people around. And we go to other churches, we should encourage that these things be practiced. I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you again for the headship of Jesus Christ. It is in our church. It is yours. And you are absolutely committed to it. I thank you God that you you simply want us to live in faith, in humility, and obedience to you, accepting all that you've said as being good even when it seems hard and uncomfortable. That we would have your mind and not question God what you have made so plain. We thank you that you do all things well. And this is the one place God where we can come and know that it is different than the world. It's not run like the world, doesn't have the attitudes of the world, doesn't have the values of the world, that we will be treated with respect and honor, that we'll be slow and careful, but deliberate and uncompromising and act without partiality, that there will be truth as well as love and not one or the other. We do thank you, God, for the great privilege of being a part of your body and for all that you've accomplished for us in Jesus and placing us in your body. In Jesus' name, amen.